Well, good to see all of you. Katie and I had a wonderful trip. I appreciate Pastor Nathan preaching for me. I generally bring my kids with me, but the organization had asked for Katie to minister to the women there and deliver a few messages. And so it got to be a little trip for the two of us away. It's been a long time since we've done anything like that. They, they put us in a hotel, so I had five days with Katie, four nights, and really special, wonderful time, made some nice new friends, but very glad to be back uh, with all of you. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful parable. I was familiar with it, but I, I've been so blessed digging into it each week, and I really hope that it has been as much of a blessing to your people here. And as we come to the end of it today, Lord, uh, it's been so rich. I pray that your grace would allow us to take many of the wonderful truths with us. Uh, and it's really almost like two parables, with the second one being about the older brother. Uh, and I pray that we would be able, if there's any ways in which he resembles us, that that would be evident and you'd grant us repentance. I pray your people would be able to see the ways that Jonah is also uh, kind of the Old Testament older brother. And uh, to me, if you're going to record two individuals like this, one in the Old Testament and one in the New, it's important and you'd want us to, to learn from them, Lord. And so I ask as always just to be able to do justice to the greatness of your word. And, and I pray for your people here I'm thankful each week as I study that you know who would be here and what is going on in each person's life and heart and marriage and family and, and with their children, with their parents and their workplaces. I can never expect to be able to, to minister to all these people, Lord, but, but fortunately your Holy Spirit can, and I believe you're with me each week as I put my message together, and so I do pray that you would encourage each one personally and privately, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many men. So we're working our way through Luke's gospel, and we find ourselves at Luke 15, 31. You don't have to turn there. We'll finish the parable of the prodigal son this morning. Uh, the title of this morning is Lessons from the Prodigal's son, Prodigal Son's Brother and Jonah. Lessons from the Prodigal Son's Brother and Jonah. First, we're going to look at some verses in Jonah, and I'll begin with a lesson to set this up. So lesson one, Jonah contains the parable of the prodigal son. Jonah contains the parable of the prodigal son. I've been thinking about the ways that Jonah resembles the parable of the prodigal son, but I wanted to wait until we reach the end of the parable so you'd have the most familiarity with it so that we could look at Jonah 4 and with your familiarity with the parable of the prodigal son, you would see the similarities with this chapter. Reading Jonah 4 really is like reading Luke 15, 25 through 31. It wouldn't be too much to say that Jonah is the Old Testament uh, older brother, and I hope this will become clear as you read these verses. And to me, I, you know, I've said this to you many times, if God's going to repeat himself, he wants to make sure we don't miss something. And so when I can see him taking two accounts, one in the old and one in the new that are so similar, uh, pointing toward the same truths for us, we want to make sure that we consider the application that they have for us. We want to examine our hearts and see if what ways we might be like Jonah or be like the older brother. So start at Jonah 3, verse 10, the last verse of chapter 3 for context. Jonah 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they repented or how they turned from their evil way, which is what repentance is, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, I know you're all familiar with this account, and so you know what's coming, but if you had not read this before, what would you expect the following verses to say? Then Jonah rejoiced greatly, right? He rejoiced greatly over the Ninevites' forgiveness. 
He was incredibly thankful for God's goodness and mercy, his uh, elaborate grace in forgiving them. And then, you know, if you kept the language of Luke 15, Jonah calls together his friends and family and neighbors and says what? Rejoice with me, for the Ninevites who were lost have been found. Uh, They were dead and are now alive. And then Jonah and all those he celebrated uh, with, or all those with him began to celebrate. Instead, he looks just like who? Huh? Okay, come on, come on. He looks like who? Jonah 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And so here's the typology. The Ninevites are like who? Quickly, immediately forgiven, huh? The younger brother. The Ninevites live wickedly. They repent quickly and graciously forgiven. Jonah, like the older brother, he's upset about the Ninevites' forgiveness. Like the older brother, is upset about his younger brother's forgiveness. And God, in Jonah 4, looks like the father in Luke 15. And he should because they're the same what? The same God or the same father or the same person. And he forgives the Ninevites as quickly and graciously as the father forgave his youngest son. If you write in your Bible, you can circle this verse and you can draw a line and write Luke 15, 28. You can circle Jonah 4, verse 1, draw a little line and write Luke 15, 28, which says, the older brother was angry and he refused to go in. And then it says his father came out and entreated him or ministered to him. And hold on to that for a moment too. The word anger or angry, it occurs six times in Jonah 4. And it struck me that the word repeated throughout Jonah 4 is anger or angry when the word that should be repeated is the word that's repeated in Luke 15, which is joy or rejoice, right? And so there's this very strong contradiction between Jonah's behavior, what his behavior was, and what his behavior should have been. We see the word anger again in verse 2, while Jonah criticizes God for being slow to anger. He prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, and he says this very angrily, that you are a gracious God and merciful You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. If you remember our last sermon, it was titled, When God's Grace to Others Bothers Us. And if I'd had room in that sermon, we could have used Jonah as another perfect example of someone being bothered by God's grace to others. He was not happy about God's character. It's interesting how context is so crucial because if you took what Jonah said about God and put it almost anywhere else in Scripture, it would be what of God? A compliment or a praise, right? If you plucked up Jonah's words, I mean, if you look at him, look what he said here. It's like could be written in the Psalms or something. I mean, it could be what anyone would be saying when they're worshiping him. You're a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. I mean, it's an incredible praise here. Well, it would be incredible praise if it wasn't from Jonah. Relenting from disaster. But Jonah doesn't offer this as a praise. He offers it as what? A criticism. It's born from this angry heart. We see the word angry again in verse 4. The Lord said, 
do you do well? And I suspect God said this gently to him, so I probably didn't capture it well. I suspect the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And one of the reasons that I want you to see God ministering gently or tenderly to Jonah here is because I believe that God here looks like the father in Luke 15 who ministered in what way to his Jonah or oldest son? How did the father in Luke 15 look to the oldest son? Was he harsh and cruel with him? Come on, guys. Come on. <laughs> huh? Yeah, he's gently. He's, he's gently. He's very tender with him. The father comes out to minister to him just like God here comes outside the city to minister to Jonah. He's, very, he's, he's got this tenderness with him, and I want to capture that. The Lord says, Tim, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. He sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And so his actions here also look like the older brother, the older brother going outside the celebration. Luke 15, 28 says the older brother refused. Luke 15, 28 says the older brother refused to go in, just like Jonah refused to go into the city. Both of them so upset about the forgiveness that was shown. Verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plan, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And now there's this transition from Jonah looking like the older brother to God looking like the father, because it said in Luke 15, 28, the father came out and entreated the older brother. And now we see God coming out to entreat or minister to Jonah. Just like the father could have rebuked the older brother for his ugly attitude, God could have rebuked Jonah for his ugly attitude, instead, we see that same gentleness or tenderness here that we see in Luke 15. Verse 7, when the day came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and he said, it is better for me, better for me to die than to live. So the second time that Jonah requested to die, Verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, I'm assuming very angrily, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I pity Nineveh? I mean, this is like the language of your brother was lost and is found, is dead and is alive. Should I not have pity on your younger brother and celebrate and rejoice his salvation? Should I not pity these Ninevites in this great city in which there's more than 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left and also much cattle? And we see another parallel as we come to the end of this account. God tells Jonah why he was moved to forgive the Ninevites, and it's the same reason that the father was moved to forgive the youngest son. The word pity occurs twice. In verse 10, God points out that Jonah had pity on the plant, and in verse 11 says that he should have had pity on the city of Nineveh, like God himself did, and that Hebrew word for pity is hus, and it means to have compassion or look upon with compassion which is why many Bibles translate the word pity as compassion. And so the idea is God says, I had compassion on the Ninevites. I looked at them. 
I saw them, and that compassion moved me to forgive them. Well, what did the father have when he looked out in Luke 15, verse 20? While the son was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In fact, if you write in your Bibles, you can circle the words, I pity Nineveh, or I have compassion on Nineveh, and write Luke 15, 20. Because God looks like the father here being moved by compassion to forgive repentant sinners. And I want to look at these verses in Jonah because they're reinforcing the teaching on the older brother. And so anytime you're looking at something in Scripture and you can see it reinforced from other areas of Scripture, it shows you something that God really wants to drive home and make sure we don't miss. And so keeping this in mind, go ahead and turn to Luke 15 as we finish this wonderful parable this morning. And I want to remind you that even though we read this parable and focus on the younger brother, especially because that's how the parable has been titled uh, by man, not by God himself, we tend to focus on that younger brother. But Jesus preached this parable, just like the other parables in the chapter, in response to the religious leader's criticism that he receives sinners and eats with them. And so because the older brother represents those religious leaders who brought this criticism against Jesus, it wouldn't be too much to say that the parable is as much about, or perhaps even more so, the older brother, because the older brother represents the religious leaders. And so let's make sure we don't miss the great application or instruction God wants us to learn from the older brother. And so verse 31, Luke 15, our new verse for this morning, we reached verse 30 last sermon. Luke 15, 31, Jesus, or the father, said to him, and I assume he said this very tenderly, he said, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And just, I don't want to, we've read these verses many times, so I don't want to go, go too far back, but if you remember the context, the father's very kind to the son in verse 27, which he didn't have to be, because the son was rebelling, against his father in not going into that party. It would have been a scene. It would have disrupted what was happening and showed, a, showed a, uh, a rebelliousness toward his father's authority. Then the son responds rudely to the father in verses 28 through 30. We might expect the father's patience to come to an end and rebuke his son at this point, but he still continues to be gracious toward him. And do you remember how the son talked to his father. There's no respectful title for him. He doesn't call him father, say nothing about dad or daddy or Abba, which would be the Aramaic for father. He doesn't call him Lord or master, which would also be expected titles. He just says, look, angrily to his father, look. But unlike the son, the father responds very tenderly to his son. He says to him, son, and it's actually kinder than it looks because the Greek word for son is weos, weos. It's the word used throughout this parable for son. Eight times the word, because it's the parable of the two sons, so son comes up repeatedly. Eight times to be exact, the Greek word for son occurs. Like if you look in verse 11, he said there was a man who had two sons. That's weos, not many. Then verse 13, 
Now many days later, the younger son, Weos, gathered all he had. And if we continued through the parable, we see the repeated use of the word Weos. That is not the word here when the father talks to his son. It's the word technon, which is the Greek word for child. So throughout the Gospels, when a child is brought to Jesus or he lays his hand on a, a child, that's the word that's used here. And so Robert Morrison said, the father did not call him son. He called him child, so it is in the Greek, and a child is a word of tenderest affection. And so I guess one of the things that just really struck me is I, I continue to see this father having compassion, not just for the rebellious younger son, but also for the rebellious older son. Very patient, very long-suffering with both sons, equally gracious toward them. Then in response to the son's accusation that he never received so much as a goat, this wise, gracious father seeks to reconcile with his son by sharing a few things with him. And first he tells him that they've always been together. And so what is he reminding his son of? He's reminding him of their relationship and, and their fellowship, the, the affection that should, should exist between them, that, elite, that had from the father toward the son, but apparently had not been existing from the son toward the father, and that that relationship between them had never been threatened. Michael Morrison, a different commentator, said, every day the older brother had his father's company, he had the blessed society of home, his father's love was round about him constantly. And so it's incredibly sad to see a son who had so much blessing and love bestowed on him, such a wonderful, beautiful relationship with his father, yet be so angry and disgruntled like this. And I think there's a lesson for us that we'll get to in just a moment, if you keep that in mind, because I want to point out the second thing that the father reminded his son of, and that everything he had belonged to him. Now, if you briefly look at verse 12, briefly look at verse 12, it says, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them, between both sons. So both sons were given their inheritance. One son, the younger son, took his inheritance and fled to the Gentile territory and then squandered all of it. But everything that was still at home or everything that was still in the father's possession, because the inheritance had been distributed between the sons, did technically belong to the older brother. And so when the father said this, it was literal. When he says, everything that I, that I have is yours, he meant everything that I have left because I've distributed everything to you and your brother, and everything that remains at home does technically belong to you and is yours for the asking. So one thing you notice is the, the older brother... He complains about what he doesn't have. He's like, I don't get a measly go. I'm not going to get to go have a party with my, with my friends, even a small one in comparison to this large party you're throwing for my older brother. But as it turns out, the father never restricted the son that way. There's lots the son had available to him or at his disposal. He, he could have, the father did not restrict him in this way. He could have had the, uh, uh, some number of animals. He could have had this party if that's what he wanted. And so we can tell the father deeply loves his older son as well. He's not forgotten or neglected. And this brings us to lesson two. When God blesses others, it doesn't mean less for us. 
when God blesses others, it doesn't mean less for us. And this is a little bit of last Sunday's, or the last sermon, a continuation of that, that when God is gracious to others, it should not bother us. So give me some latitude to discuss something that will relate to this in just a moment. So one of the problems with socialists, or one of the problems with socialism is that wealth is viewed as this very limited resource. And maybe you can say, are you talking about socialism? I'm talking about socialism. It is, it is immoral. We talk about moral things behind the pulpit. It's, it's theft. We should be aware of that. And so one of the problems with socialism is wealth is viewed as this very limited resource. And so if wealth is a limited resource, then if one person has more, then there must be others that what? Had to have less. And that's why in socialist circles, who's bad? rich or wealthy people because they have taken what has supposedly belonged to people with less. And so it, it kind of reminds me of like the Nazis in Germany, uh, where they have convinced everyone that the Jews are bad because the wealth they have has been taken from you, and you don't have more because they're, you're poor because they're rich, essentially. Uh, capitalists generally recognize wealth can increase across the board, and even as it increases for the wealthiest, it can trickle down to benefit those with less. Now, why, why would I mention this? I mention it because this is what came to mind to me as I thought about the oldest son, and it can be the same thing that we might tend to think. Now, we might, the oldest son wasn't a socialist financially, and I doubt that we're socialists financially, but we could be socialists regarding God's blessings or grace. The older brother believed that if his brother was given more, then that's going to mean less for him. He saw his father's blessings as this limited resource, and for the younger brother to be blessed the way that he did had to mean that he would be deprived in return. But what does the father explain to him? He says that just because the younger brother was blessed, it doesn't mean there's less blessing for you. All that is mine is yours. You're not missing out on anything. You are not deprived just because I blessed your brother. More for him doesn't mean less for you. And I mention this because sometimes when we see people who are blessed, we might feel this way. We might think God's blessings are limited, or we might believe his, his grace is a, is, is a resource that, you know, is not infinite. And if other people are blessed, then that's going to be less for us. The father's words reveal to the older son as well as to us that that's not the case. And this brings us to lesson three. Do we recognize our spiritual blessings? Lesson three, do we recognize our spiritual blessings? So, because we were off last week, and I suppose because I've been working on this parable, you know, for months, all these months of reflecting on it, it has occurred to me that this son is really in one of the saddest conditions you see someone in in Scripture regarding having so much available to him but failing to recognize it or appreciate it. Such great blessings and grace at his disposal, but, but um, just blind to, to what was available to him. Some commentators, such as John MacArthur, see the religious leaders in this. The religious leaders, they have access to all the riches of God's truth. They have this inheritance as well as God's people and as the religious leaders of those people. They spend their lives dealing with Scripture and public worship. It's something as a pastor, you know, I hope I don't take for granted. I can take for granted that God has graciously allowed me to spend my life studying His Word, which is an incredible joy to me, but I can take that for granted. And I think there's plenty of blessings we can have at our disposal that we take for granted. 
that we fail to appreciate how fortunate we are. The religious leaders, they're steeped in this works-based religion. They hope to earn God's blessings versus receiving them by grace through faith. They fail to comprehend the meaning of forgiveness, which is why they're so angry when Jesus forgave repentant sinners. And so it's shocking to me that the older brother and the religious leaders had so many blessings available but didn't seem to notice. But spiritually speaking, we can be the same. We are sons. How many blessings are available to us? I think I've been enjoying the ACBC training that began Friday and carried till Saturday. And one of the gentlemen, I can't remember which message it was. I wish I had put this in my notes. He says that he communicates to people that the moment they're saved, there's hundreds of things that have changed for them hundreds of blessings that they that they receive spiritually speaking we are sons of the father we're heirs and joint heirs with christ how many blessings might be at our disposal that we don't even notice just mark your spot in luke 15 and turn to ephesians 1 for a moment i want you to see how god blesses his children us assuming we're believers every day I'm going to go through this kind of quickly because sometimes it's nice to catch a theme, but that can only happen if you read through verses fairly quickly. So just looking at Ephesians 1 verse 3, consider all these blessings that are available to us. To avoid being like the older son would be to appreciate what God has given us, not take this for granted. So Ephesians 1 verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places he's chosen us look in verse four even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him if you're a christian and you're could have spent your whole life and nobody's ever chosen you nobody's ever wanted you for something i don't know that many people could say that's the case but if that was the case and you're a christian and you were never picked for the team or you were never elected to be class president or you're never chosen for homecoming whatever it is you were never chosen or elect for if you're a christian you should celebrate that god has chosen you that you are elect in christ if nobody else ever thought much of you god has look in verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him he's predestined us to adopt us verse 5 it says in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will redeemed through his blood forgiven of all of our sins verse 7 it says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace do you remember when we talked about trespasses before a trespass is a unique sin a trespass is a sin you committed deliberately intentionally you saw that line and you still chose to trespass we talk about trespassing on someone else's property if there's a boundary line and you stepped over it so here's my point of mentioning that you can sit back and say well maybe god's only forgiven me for those small sins that i did sort of unintentionally or accidentally or i wasn't really that serious about to say that christ's blood has forgiven you for the trespasses you've committed is to say that even those things that you did in a high-handed rebellious stubborn stiff-necked way christ's sacrifice is great enough to even forgive you for that christ's blood even forgives you for the very worst horrible things you did in god's face in absolute rebellion against him 
You have been redeemed through his blood, forgiven of those trespasses even, according to the riches of his grace. He's made known the mystery of his will to us. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The inheritance we've received, I mean, even greater. The, the inheritance that the sons received pales in comparison to our inheritance. Verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise so you never need to go through life wondering whether you're going to lose your salvation or fall out of favor with God because God's favor toward you is never dependent on you. You didn't earn your salvation, so you can't do anything to lose it. You repented and you put your faith in Christ, and then God sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee for you of the inheritance you have until we are able to acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, brothers, that is a lot of blessings, isn't it? That is an incredible list to read through. If you can sit here and I could read that and you didn't kind of get goosebumps a little bit associated with how good God's been to you and how much he's blessed you, you might consider whether, uh, you know, you really fathom what we're talking about because this is an incredible list of God's grace in our lives. And something to notice is none of them are physical. You've got the older son who's complaining about his younger brother getting what? He got a goat. He gets this party and the fattened calf, these physical temporary things, none of them spiritual or eternal. But here's the thing. If you're like me, you might be with, like that older brother who's looking around at the physical temporary things that other people have or that we don't have. Oh, they got a goat. Oh, oh they got the fattened calf and I don't. And they get the big party and I don't even get a little party. We have nothing to be feeling sorry about when we read those, that list in Ephesians 1. And that's just one place in Scripture. Plenty of others discussing all we have in Christ. Listening to John MacArthur the other day, he said something. If you don't have Christ, you have nothing. If you have Christ, you have everything. God could say to us what the father said to the older brother, son, or let's say daughter. You are always with me. When you read Luke 15, 31, you can read that as though God is speaking to you. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. All the blessings in Ephesians 1 belong to you, and all of the blessings in the other places in Scripture that I have told you belong to you, belong to you. It seems to me earthly fathers want to bless their children, considering how much our Heavenly Father loves us. I know He wants to bless us as well. And we must strive to be mindful of those blessings or else we tend to be like that oldest son. Look at the last verse of the parable, verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now in verse 30, how did the older brother refer to his younger brother? In verse 30, how did the older brother refer to his younger brother? Huh? This son of yours... He just can't bring himself to call him his brother. 
What does the father remind him of? This is your brother. This is your flesh and blood. He was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. He was found. It's a rebuke to the younger son that he should appreciate that this is his brother. Now, what's interesting is even though the older brother clearly looked down on the younger brother, if you had to choose between being either of these sons, who would you rather be? I would rather be the younger son. And why is that? Because people who sin greatly, even the very worst sins we can imagine, but repent, are always going to have a better standing with God than people who've committed, whether this is even legitimate or not, lesser sins, because I don't know if there's really any people who can look at their lives and be that. I mean, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God doesn't talk about some people falling shorter or further than, than others, but people who repent are always going to have a better standing with God than people who fail to walk in, in humility and repentance. Now, this last verse reveals one of the other similarities between the accounts. God encouraged Jonah to celebrate the Ninevites' repentance and the father encouraged the older son to celebrate his younger brother's repentance. And this brings us to lesson four. The prodigal son's brother and Jonah teach us part one to rejoice over salvation. The prodigal son's brother and Jonah teach us part one to rejoice over salvation. So verse 32 is not just the end of this parable. It's the end of this chapter, which really could be viewed as a unit. And verse 32 is a fitting conclusion. It really summarizes the whole chapter. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. And couldn't that be the response that Jesus would have for the religious leaders when they criticize him for not celebrate or for actually for celebrating and being glad about sinners' repentance? It's almost like what he could be saying back to the religious leaders. It is fitting to celebrate and to be glad, not to grumble and complain like you guys are doing, when sinners repent. And it captures one of the themes of the chapter. The shepherd, the woman, the father all rejoice when the lost is found, and we should too. But what you notice with Jonah and with the older brother is the absence of joy. They're both angry instead. Now, am I the only one who wonders how the older brother and Jonah responded? Do you reach the end of Jonah 4 and see God's last statement to Jonah and then wonder what Jonah said or thought or did? Did Jonah go into Nineveh? Do you read the father's words to the older brother and wonder how the older brother responded? And so that's one of the other similarities between these accounts. They end on cliffhangers, right? (laughs) They're left open-ended. Did Jonah go into the city of Nineveh to celebrate? Did the son end up going into the party to celebrate? We're not told. I suspect it's written this way because it reveals God holding out hope for Jonah to rejoice. And it looks like the father is holding out hope for the older brother to rejoice. And the parable is left open-ended because Jesus was preaching it to whom? Not us, but who was, I mean, there's application for us, but who was he preaching this to or in response to their accusation. So it's left open-ended because he's leaving it open for them to respond. How will you respond to this? Are you going to continue 
to resent me for forgiving repentant sinners? And are you going to continue to despise the repentant sinners whom I love? And sadly, we know the answer to that for most of the religious leaders, right? They did continue to despise Jesus till they called out their, for his crucifixion, and they did continue to detest repentant sinners. The application for us is, are we going to rejoice over sinners' salvation? One of the other things from the ACBC training that started Friday um, that I've enjoyed was a message about the church being a body, and this gentleman talked about this fall. He was climbing on this ladder, I think he said in his garage, and he fell off the ladder and landed and hurt himself pretty badly, but discussed how his whole body sprung into action to respond. First, his mouth started doing what? yelling, right? <laughs> his hand comes up to rub his shoulder, and he just talked about how his whole body responded, even though it was just his shoulder that slammed into the ground. And his point was that we should respond as a body to what other members of the body are experiencing or going through. And that's contained in this. That's one of the main points of this chapter is that heaven's going to be celebrating and earth should be celebrating too. Heaven's rejoicing over the salvation of a sinner. We should all be rejoicing over the salvation of a sinner. And when the church goes through something or experiences something, we experience that together. That's the language of Romans 12, 15. Rejoice those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. One member suffers. All suffer together. One member is honored. All rejoice together. And so a question we might ask ourselves is, do we strive to feel what other members are feeling are we if we're not we're like the older brother that's not striving to relate to the younger brother if we are then we're doing what god would desire us to do which is to say hey this person was lost and they're found they were dead and now they're alive what a wonderful moment of celebration this is for us it's nice to be able to see the baptisms today and hopefully view those as times of celebration and then the last part lesson four the prodigal son's brother and jonah teach us part two god wants to forgive the prodigal son's brother and Jonah teach us part two, God wants to forgive. I would be remiss if I finished this chapter and didn't conclude by discussing the real insight I think God wants us to have in his, in, of his heart, which is a heart to forgive. He doesn't do so reluctantly. He doesn't do so willingly like us. Don't, is, is my the only one that finds forgiveness? Maybe I'm the only one that finds forgiveness hard. I find forgiveness hard. It's a weakness of mine. Fortunately, God isn't like me, and he loves to forgive. He wants to forgive. He's looking for repentant people to forgive. And this chapter in the book of Jonah reveal why Jesus hasn't returned yet. There are more people that God wants to forgive. There are more people that he wants to see saved. There are more people, why do, you know, why has Christ not come back yet? Because there's more lost people to be found. There's more dead people to be made alive. And that's not my opinion. 2 Peter 3, 9, the whole context of 2 Peter 3 is people upset that Christ hasn't returned yet. I don't even know if upset's the right word. They're mocking, they're ridiculing. They're saying Christ is never going to return. And then Peter makes this point and says, Christ hasn't returned because... He's not slow to fulfill his promise of some count slowness. He's patient toward you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Charles Spurgeon said about these parables, the truth here taught is just this, that mercy stretches forth her hand to misery, that grace receives men as sinners, that grace deals with merit, unworthiness, and worthlessness, that those who think themselves righteous are not the objects of divine compassion, but the unrighteous, the guilty, and the undeserving are the proper subjects for the infinite mercy of God. In a word, salvation is not of merit, but of God's grace. And that's definitely what we see in this chapter. So the chapter really speaks to all unrepentant sinners. Or we could say that this chapter speaks to all tax collectors and sinners, represented by the lost sheep, the lost coin, the younger brother. And what's the message? The message is God loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to find you. If you're a prodigal, he wants you to return home. You'll be welcomed lovingly and graciously. And this reveals why there's a burden associated with this chapter that I think many people don't consider. We see this as one of the most encouraging in all of Scripture, and it definitely is, but there's also a huge burden with it associated with the accountability that it gives us. Because after being given this window into God's heart, you have knowledge now. You know what that heart is like. You know that there's nobody that's too wicked for God. So you're left without an excuse. You're, you're dealing with a God that's this loving and this merciful and this gracious, and so you can't say what? <laughs> you can't say, he would never forgive me. You can't say, I have been too bad for him. You can't say, he could never love me after this. Anyone who reads this can tell, like we talked about a few sen- sermons ago, in the language of Romans 5.20, that wherever sin has increased, no matter how much sin has ever increased, grace has always increased or abounded even more. God's forgiveness will always be greater than any sin we could commit. And when God can forgive the younger son, we must see how he can forgive us too. And what did the younger son, and I'll conclude with this, what did the younger son do to be forgiven? I mean, how many sacrifices did he offer? How many church how many times did he attend church? How, how many times was, did he read the Bible? How, there's nothing. It was nothing more than humbling self, repenting, and turning toward the Father. And if we do that, we see no prodigal is ever beyond being forgiven to. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy so evident in these parables. Uh, I think not just toward the younger son, but even your continued grace toward the older son, your patience with him. Your, I think your long-suffering nature is shown in the way that you continue to deal gently with him despite his harshness uh, uh, toward you. So we thank you for that, Lord, this beautiful window into your heart. I, I know we've had a lot of sermons in this, and I would just pray that you would graciously allow us to take these truths from this chapter with us, to apply it to our lives, and to share with those other people who might wonder at times if they've ever sinned in such a way that they couldn't be forgiven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.